matter what hour your clock strikes. Here, it's always Halloween. And I'm always your haunted host, Luce Tomlin Brenner. Last week, we traced the origins of skeletons as a quintessential emblem of Halloween back to the mid-14th century. We discovered the first images of skeletons as art were spawned from the horrors of the Black Plague, most notably the Danse Macabre and the iconic Grim Reaper. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Grim Reaper remains firmly woven into our culture almost 700 years after his creation. It's hard to imagine Halloween and even Christmas without this skeletal harbinger of death. The Grim Reaper is a fixture in film, from comedies like Dogma and Bill and Ted, to serious art house films like The Seventh Seal, to even schlocky 80s horror like Spookies. Death is the main theme in the horror genre, but to me, the only thing scarier than dying is knowing you're going to die. The image of the Grim Reaper holds the entirety of that repulsion within his rotting, billowing cloak which is why I think this image has endured. With that in mind, I'm going to tell you an exemplary tale from a master of horror. Stephen King knows better than anyone how to wield a classic monster in a way that reaps every last bit of dread from his readers. So settle in, listeners. Pull up a blanket and maybe take a quick glance back over your shoulder just to be sure you're alone. This is the story of the Reaper's image. We moved it in last year, and quite an operation it was too, Mr. Carlin said as they mounted the stairs. Had to move it by hand, of course, no other way. We insured it against accident with Lloyd's before we even took it out of the case in the drawing room. They're the only firm that would insure for the sum we had in mind. Spangler said nothing. The man was a fool. Johnson Spangler had learned a long time ago that the only way to talk to a fool was to ignore him. Yes, insured it for a quarter of a million dollars, Mr. Carlin resumed when they had reached the second floor landing. His mouth quirked in a half-bitter, half-humorous line. And a pretty penny it cost, too. He was a little man, not quite fat, with rimless glasses and a tanned, bald head that shone like a varnished volleyball. A suit of armor guarding the mahogany shadows of the second-floor corridor stared at them impassively. It was a long hallway, and Spangler eyed the walls and hangings with a cool professional eye. Samuel Cleggart had bought in copious quantities, but he had not bought well. Like so many of the self-made industry emperors of the late 1800s, He had been little more than a pawn shop rooter masquerading in collector's clothing. A connoisseur of canvas monstrosities, trashy novels, and poetry collections in expensive cowhide bindings, and atrocious pieces of sculpture, all of which he considered art. Up here, the walls were hung, festooned was perhaps a better word, with imitation Moroccan drapes, 
numberless and no doubt anonymous, Madonnas holding numberless haloed babes while numberless angels flitted hither and thither in the background, grotesque scrolled candelabra, and one monstrous and obscenely ornate chandelier surmounted by a salaciously grinning nymphette. Of course the old pirate had come up with a few interesting items, the law of averages demanded it, and if the Samuel Cleggert Memorial Private Museum guided tours on the hour, admission $1 for adults, 50 cents for children, was 98% blatant junk, there was always the other 2%, things like the coombs long rifle over the hearth in the kitchen, and the strange little camera obscura in the parlor, and of course the the diver looking glass was removed from downstairs after a rather unfortunate, uh, incident, Mr. Carlin said abruptly, motivated apparently by a ghastly glaring portrait of no one in particular at the base of the next staircase. There had been others, harsh words, wild statements, but this was an attempt to actually destroy the mirror. The woman, a Miss Sandra Bates, came in with a rock in her pocket. Fortunately, her aim was bad and she only cracked a corner of the case. The mirror was unharmed. The Bates girl had a brother. No need to give me the dollar to her, Spangler said. I'm conversant with the history of the Diver glass. Fascinating, isn't it? Carlin cast him an odd, oblique look. There was that English duchess in 1709 and the Pennsylvania rug merchant in 1746. Not to mention, I'm conversant with the history, Spangler repeated. It's the workmanship that I'm interested in. And, of course, there is the question of authenticity. Authenticity? (laughs) Mr. Carlin chuckled. It was a dry sound, as if bones had been stirred in a cupboard below the stairs. It's been examined by experts, Mr. Spangler. They climbed the third and fourth flights in silence. As they drew closer to the roof of the rambling structure, it became oppressively hot in the dark upper galleries. With the heat came a creeping stench that Spangler knew well, for he had spent all his adult life working in it. A smell of long dead flies in shadowy corners, of wet rot and creeping wood lice behind the plaster. The smell of age. It was a smell common only to museums and mausoleums. Up here, the relics were piled helter-skelter in true junk shop profusion. Mr. Carlin led Spangler through a maze of statuary, frame-splintered portraits, pompous gold-plated birdcages, and the dismembered skeleton of an ancient tandem bicycle. He led them to the far wall where a stepladder had been set up beneath a trap door in the ceiling. A dusty padlock hung from the trap. Off to the left, an imitation Adonis stared at them pitilessly with blank, pupilless eyes. One arm was outstretched, and a yellow sign hung on the wrist which read, Absolutely no admittance. Mr. Carlin produced a key ring from his jacket pocket, selected a key, and mounted the stepladder. He paused on the third rung his bald head gleaming faintly in the shadows. I don't like that mirror, he said. I never did. I'm afraid to look into it. 
I'm afraid I might look into it one day and, and see what the rest of them saw. They saw nothing but themselves, Spangler said. Mr. Carlin began to speak, stopped, shook his head, and fumbled above him, craning his neck to fit the key properly into the lock. Oh, should be replaced, he muttered. It's, oh, damn. The lock sprung suddenly, swung out of the hasp, and Mr. Carlin made a fumbling grab for it and almost fell off the ladder. Spangler caught it deftly and looked up at him. He was clinging shakily to the top of the stepladder, face white in the brown semi-darkness. You are nervous about this, aren't you? Spangler said in a mildly wondering tone. Mr. Carlin said nothing. He seemed paralyzed. Come down, Spangler said, please, before you fall. Carlin descended the ladder slowly, clinging to each rung like a man tottering over a bottomless chasm. When his feet touched the floor, he began to babble, as if the floor contained some current that had turned him on like an electric light. A quarter of a million, he said. A quarter of a million dollars worth of insurance to take that thing from down there to up here. That goddamn thing. They had to rig a special block and tackle to get it into the gable storeroom up there, and I was hoping, almost praying that someone's fingers would be slippery, that the rope would be wrong, and it would somehow fall down the stairs and be shattered into a million pieces. Facts, Spangler said. Facts, Carland. No cheap paperback novels, no cheap tabloid stories, or equally cheap horror movies, okay? Facts. Number one, John D. Iver was an English craftsman of Norman descent who made mirrors in what we call the Elizabethan period in England's history. He lived and died uneventfully. No pentacles scrawled on the floor for the housekeeper to rub out. No sulfur-smelling documents with a splotch of blood on the dotted line. Number two. His mirrors have become collector's items due to the fine craftsmanship and to the fact that a form of crystal was used that has a mildly magnifying and distorting effect upon the eye of the beholder, a rather distinctive trademark. Number three, only five divers remain in existence to our present knowledge, two of them in America. They are priceless. Number four, this diver and one other that was destroyed in the London Blitz have gained a rather spurious reputation due largely to falsehood, exaggeration, and coincidence. Fact number five, Mr. Carlin said, you're a supercilious bastard, aren't you? Spangler looked with mild detestation at the blind-eyed Adonis. I was guiding the tour that Sandra Bates' brother was a part of when he got his look into your precious diver mirror, Spangler. He was perhaps 16, part of a high school group. I was just going through the history of the glass and had just got to the part you would appreciate, extolling the flawless craftsmanship, the perfection of the glass itself, when the boy raised his hand. But what about that black splotch in the upper left-hand corner, he asked. That looks like a mistake. And one of his friends asked what he meant, so the Bates boy started to tell him and then stopped. He looked at the mirror very closely. He pushed right up to the red velvet guard rope around the case 
And then he looked behind him as if what he had seen had been the reflection of someone, someone in black standing at his shoulder. It looked like a man, he said, but I I couldn't see his face. It's, It's gone now. And that was all he said. Go on, Spangler said. You're itching to tell me it was the Grim Reaper. I believe that's the common explanation, isn't it? The occasional chosen people see the Reaper's image in the glass. Get it out of your system, man. The National Enquirer would love it. Tell me about the horrific consequences. Defy me to explain it. Was he later hit by a car? Did he jump out a window? What? Mr. Carlin chuckled, a forlorn little chuckle. (laughs) You should know better, Spangler. Haven't you told me twice that you are, uh conversant with the history of the diver glass there were no horrific consequences there never have been that's why the diver glass isn't sunday supplementized like the coador diamond or the curse of king tut's tomb it's mundane compared to those you think i'm a fool don't you yes spangler said can we go up now certainly mr carlin said passionately He climbed the ladder and pushed the trap door. There was a clickety-clackety bump as it was drawn up into the shadows by the counterweight, and then Mr. Carlin disappeared into the shadows. Spangler followed. The blind Adonis stared unknowingly after them. The gable room was explosively hot, lit only by one cobwebby, many-angled window that filtered the hard outside light into a dirty, milky glow. The looking glass was propped at an angle into the light, catching most of it and reflecting a pearly patch of it onto the far wall. It had been bolted securely into a wooden frame. Mr. Carlin was not looking at it, quite studiously not looking at it. You don't even have a dust cloth over it, Spangler said, visibly angered for the first time. I think of it as an eye, Mr. Carlin said, his voice still drained, perfectly empty. If it's left open, always open, perhaps it will go blind. Spangler paid no attention. He took off his jacket, folded the buttons carefully in, and with infinite gentleness, He wiped the dust from the convex surface of the glass itself. Then he stood back and looked at it. It was genuine. There was no doubt about it. Never had been, really. It was a perfect example of Diver's particular genius. The cluttered room behind him, his own reflection, Carlin's half-turned figure. They were all clear, sharp, almost three-dimensional. The faint magnifying effect of the glass gave everything a slightly curved effect that added almost a fourth dimensional distortion. It was... His thought broke off. He felt another wave of anger. Carlin! Carlin said nothing. Carlin, you damned fool! I thought you said that girl didn't harm the mirror. No answer. Spangler stared at him icily in the glass. There is a piece of friction tape in the upper left-hand corner. Did she crack it? For God's sakes, man, speak up. You're seeing the Reaper, Carlin said, his voice deadly and without passion. There's no friction tape on the mirror. Put your hand over it. Dear God. 
Spangler wrapped the upper sleeve of his coat carefully around his hand, reached out, and pressed it gently against the mirror. You see, nothing supernatural. It's gone. My hand covers it. Covers it? Can you feel the tape? Why don't you pull it off? Spangler took his hand away carefully and looked into the glass. Everything in it seemed a little more distorted. The room's odd angles seemed to yaw crazily, as if on the verge of sliding off into some unseen eternity. There was no dark spot in the mirror. It was flawless. He felt a sudden unhealthy dread rise in him and despised himself for feeling it. It looked like him, didn't it? Mr. Carlin asked. His face was very pale, and he was looking directly at the floor. A muscle twitched spasmodically in his neck. Admitted, Spangler, it looked like a hooded figure standing behind you, did it not? It looked like friction tape masking a short crack, Spangler said. Nothing more, nothing less. The Bates boy was very husky. Carlin said rapidly, his words seemed to drop into the hot, still atmosphere like stones into dark water, like a football player. He was wearing a letter sweater, dark green chinos. We were halfway up to the upper exhibits when... This heat is making me feel ill, Spangler said a little unsteadily. He had taken out a handkerchief and was wiping his neck. His eyes searched the convex surface of the mirror in small jerky movements. When he said he wanted a drink of water, a drink of water, for God's sakes. Carlin turned and stared wildly at Spangler. How was I to know? How was I to know? Is there a lavatory? I think I'm going to be. His sweater. I caught a glimpse of his sweater going down the stairs and then I'm going to be sick. Carlin shook his head as if to clear it and looked at the floor again. Of course third door on your left, second floor as you go towards the stairs. He looked up appealingly. How was I to know? But Spangler had already stepped onto the ladder. It rocked under his weight and for a moment Carlin thought, hoped that he would fall. He didn't. Through the open square on the floor, Carlin watched him descend, holding his mouth lightly with one hand. Spangler? But he was gone. Carlin listened to his footfalls fade to echoes and then die away. When they were gone, he shivered violently. He tried to move his own feet to the trap door, but they were frozen. Just that last hurried glimpse of the boy's sweater. God! It was as if huge, invisible hands were now pulling at his head, forcing it up. Not wanting to look, Carlin stared into the glimmering depths of the diver looking glass. There was nothing there. The room was reflected back to him faithfully, its dusty confines transmuted into glimmering infinity. A snatch of a half-remembered Tennyson poem occurred to him, and he muttered it out loud. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady Shallot. And still he could not look away, and the breathing stillness held him. From around one corner of the mirror, a moth-eaten buffalo head peered at him with flat obsidian eyes. The boy had wanted a drink of water, and the fountain was in the first floor lobby. He had gone downstairs and... and never came back. Ever. Anywhere. Like the duchess who had paused after primping before her glass for a soiree, 
and decided to go back into the sitting room for her pearls. Like the rug merchant who had gone for a carriage ride and had left behind him only an empty carriage and two closed mouth horses. Carlin stared as if hypnotized into the shallow depths of the mirror. Below, the blind-eyed Adonis kept watch. He waited for Spangler, much like the Bates family must have waited for their son, much like the Duchess's husband must have waited for his wife to return from the sitting room. Carlin stared into the mirror and he waited and waited and waited. Ooh, yikes, I have goosebumps. What about you, listeners? That story really touches on the reason why when I have to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I do not like to look into the medicine cabinet mirror. I'm just very scared of what might be lurking in a mirror in the middle of the night. Do you have any fears about mirrors or reapers or skeletons? Well, I want to hear them. Call in to the All Hallows hotline at 802-532-DEAD. Or you can write me an eek mail at it's always Halloween Podcast at gmail.com. Or drop me a line on Instagram at it's always Halloween Podcast. If you liked hearing today's story and original sound design by Pete Burns, then please subscribe to It's Always Halloween on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash it's always Halloween. If you join at the $13 a month level, you'll get two ghost stories a month with original sound design. We have treats at every level, starting at $3, going up to $6, $10, $13, and $16.66. So please head on over to patreon.com slash it's always Halloween to lend your support. This episode of It's Always Halloween was performed by me, Luce Tomlin-Brenner. I read the original short story, The Reaper's Image, by Stephen King. It can be found in his collection of short stories called Skeleton Crew. The editing, theme music, and sound design for today's episode is by Pete Burns. Thanks, Pete! If you're on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and write us a little review so that other like-minded ghouls can find us. We're also on the NPR One app. So subscribe to us there and tell Ira Glass what a great job we're doing. Thanks for listening to It's Always Halloween and come back next time unless you stare into the D. Ivor Glass and get lost forever. Forever.